Yindi Tanrap, which is welcome in Thai. That's right, in Thai. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am your podcast host and the creator of Daddy Unscripted. Oh, well, let me tell you all, because I'm sure a lot of you are coming here for the first time. Welcome to you, especially, first of all. But secondly, why did I say Yindi Tan Rap to you and say that in Thai? It's because every episode, my little extra gem that I give out to you all for free, by the way, is that I'm doing a welcome in a different language with each episode. At some point, I'm probably... Uh, no, I hope I never run out. I hope I never get to an episode where I say I have used all the languages of the world that should be impossible for me to do. But a very big welcome to all of you that are here to hear my very special guest today, James Breakwell. James is, well, I kind of hate to use this term, but it is true. He is internet famous. He is Twitter famous. He is known as Exploding Unicorn, if you don't know him by name. And he exploded onto the scene in 2016 with his Twitter and all of his comedy surrounding the lives of his four daughters. And it's fantastic. His Twitter is extremely fun to read. I don't think just for parents, definitely not just for dads. Um, But it's really hilarious stuff about real life situations and how silly kids are and the things that they do and the things that they say and how we sometimes feel defeated as parents in a very, very, very humorous and tangible way. So make sure that you look, look him up there. I'm okay with you pausing this podcast if you haven't seen him yet and go and read some stuff and then come back and listen to this podcast. We'll give you a little bit of time right now. Okay, you're back. Welcome back. So I sent an email off. I uh, had discovered James quite a bit ago and sent him an email. And he was so fantastically generous. He emailed me back extremely rapidly. And we set up to do this podcast together. And I'm just excited to have somebody that shares my feelings of how you kind of just have to laugh through a lot of parenting and through the things that you have to go through as a parent. So James is right up my alley in that way. And I know he is in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people's alleys as well. James, you're in too many people's alleys. The Daddy Unscripted podcast is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts. You'll hear more about Osiris at the end of this episode as well. So without further ado, let's get right to the interview with myself and James Breakwell. All right, we are here today with an awesome guest, and I say that not just as most people use the word awesome and amazing and overuse them and they don't really mean anything. I mean, you guys are going to be in awe in every sense of the word of this guest. I'm, I hope I'm not building it up too much. Uh, <laughs> you have definitely built me up too much. Far, far too but, much. Uh, we are here today with James Breakwell. You may know James from multiple different avenues, uh, being his Twitter account, his uh, name there is Exploding Unicorn without the E at the front, probably because of characters, I'm assuming. That is correct. I ran out of letters and had to sacrifice that poor E. It still hurts me. It's okay because the at sign almost looks like a lowercase kind of scrambled E, so it kind of works. You know what? I never I never looked at it that way. You've just changed my entire perspective on my name. There you go. Most people look at it as an A, but it's got a yeah. little E to it as well. So It's true. We're, we're a minute in and you've already blown my mind. Let's keep this going. <laughs> yeah. And also, he has a, a podcast that is on YouTube and everywhere else as well called Wrong and Wronger. and is an author of how many books do you have out now? 
I have one book out, Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. And my next book is coming out uh, November, I think it's November 8th. And that's going to be uh, Bare Minimum Parenting, The Ultimate Guide to Not Quite Ruining Your Child. Oh, my gosh. We, we need that immediately. So, yeah, I can't wait till November comes around for that. And I have been kind of devouring your your first book. So uh, my wife will be very happy that I've had this conversation because I keep elbowing her in bed. And a couple of the times she hasn't been awake. Sorry about that. <laughs> but well, I'm, I'm glad I've helped cause marital discord. My, my work here is done. <laughs> yeah. And two minutes in, we're done now. One, <laughs> one minute mark, I blew your mind and two minutes, we're done. This is going to be, I think, very different for a lot of the people who have come to know you very well because we're going to go a little bit deeper into James. And uh, I hope that we got a sign off on your wife for that. <laughs> you're, you're assuming that, that there is a, a deeper level. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Sometimes the pool is just shallow and that's what it is. I'm in the, I'm in the no diving section, but I'll, I'll give you what I have. Yeah. So we will go back into your history as well and see about how the paternal side of your life kind of helped shape you into the man and the dad that you are today and what your relationship was like with your dad and potentially even further back if it makes sense. And then we can start to piece together and make you, James, come together well instead of break well. <laughs> That was horrible. I'll, you know, you know I, I get what you were going for. Don't yeah, edit that yeah. out. Leave it in. It stands. <laughs> All right. So I'll turn it over to you for a while. All right. So you want me to talk about my relationship with my dad? Uh, well, first of all, he uh, he influenced the most important thing in my life, the pig. Uh, see, when I was uh, when I was born, I lived on a pig farm. It was the the third generation we've been on this hog farm, and so in my mind, like the highest aspiration you could have in life was to be a hog farmer. You know, it was like astronaut, then president, then way at the top hog farmer. But when I was uh, when I was three, my dad hurt his back and he, he left uh, and did, you know, some bad made some bad decisions. He went to college and got a degree and got a good job. But there was mm. no more pig farming. So so part of me always wanted to be on that pig farm. So I I uh, it was like my lifelong quest. I was obsessed with pigs for a long time till we moved to a new city. And then the best way to make friends isn't to talk about pigs. So I kind of I kind of shuffled it to the back. I kept it on the down low. But the pig desire was always there. Uh, you know, flash forward 30 years to adulthood. And uh, I discovered the, you know, mini pigs, they're not, you know, 25 pounds, like people claim, but they're 50 or 60 pounds, much, much smaller than the full size pigs my dad used to raise. And um, I realized that uh, this is something I could reasonably own. I was, I had a house, I had a yard. However, I also had a wife and that tends to limit options. And she said, you're not spending money on a pig. But that was my loophole. She said I wasn't spending I couldn't spend money on a pig, but she didn't say anything about getting a pig for free. <laughs> so I reached out to some pig breeders uh, as I had, you know, the social media reach. And I said, you know, I can give you free advertising online if you give me a pig. And I found somebody willing to make that trade. And they said, if I got them enough likes on Facebook, I would um, they would give me a pig. So I put it out there and uh, people rallied to the cause. I've never, in all my years in social media, had people rally to something so fast. They just saw this as, hey, this guy's endangering his marriage. We've got to go for this. And they all jumped on board. And we got their Facebook page, like 5,000 likes in two days. It was crazy. Wow. And I brought that pig home. And um, she, my wife couldn't say no to it because you know, as much as she might not have wanted a pig, she couldn't say no to a good deal. Like deep down, that was a free pig is a free pig. So now we, yeah. we have a pig and that's, uh, that's our daily adventure. My wife doesn't even hate the pig all the time. Sometimes her and the pig are good. Sometimes her and the pig aren't. I guess it's, it's a lot like having a child. The relationship changes day to day. Is this a indoor outdoor pig or... Yes, she is yeah. uh, sleeping in my daughter's bed right now. She um, she stays in my office most of the day where I'm recording right now. We we found out we couldn't well, the dog we could trust with the whole house. The pig we tried to trust her with the whole house, uh, but she's too good at getting into things. And the first time we left and let her roam the whole house by herself, um, she went into the bathroom and she's longer than the dog. And she turned around and closed the door on herself. Oh boy! And when she closed the door on herself, she panicked and she pooped everywhere. <laughs> so I came home. I was like, "Where's the pig?" 
oh God, where's the pig? And I found her in the bathroom just surrounded by poop. So now she stays in my office. They've got a doggy door. Her and the dog do. They hang out so they can go in and out to the yard as they please. And then when we're home, she can also roam the house. She's other, you know, knocking herself in the bathroom, notwithstanding, she never has accidents. She's got a, a bladder of steel. So she's, she's pretty well uh, trained for the house. Nice. You are in Indiana. Yes. Is that correct? And uh-huh. was that where you were born and raised and your dad was Indiana native? No, we were. I was born in uh, northeastern Iowa, almost on the Minnesota border, uh, way up. North, there, there's a section of Iowa they call the Iowa Alps. It's super hilly. Uh, it's where you went if you were a, you were a bad farmer. And that's where my family stuck down their claim. They're like, let's let's grow crops on these rugged hillsides where nothing will grow. This is a good plan. <laughs> For three generations, they scratched out a living up there till my dad got out, probably fortunately for, for us in the long term. So yeah, we were, I was born in Iowa and I lived there till, um, I lived on the farm for a few years and then we lived in a college town. Actually, I've, I've lived, I, I've lived through the college life twice because my dad went to college when he had two kids, uh, two kids and he came out with four. So I was in, in married student housing with them through then. And then I went back to college on my own later. And then my dad got a job in Illinois. So I actually grew up mostly in Illinois. I went there third grade through high school. And then I went to college in Indiana where I met my wife and I've been in Indiana ever since. So you're ba- you're just nailing down the I states. Basically. Yes, it's my I state migration. I think I've only got a few left. There's Idaho. Is there any others? Maybe, maybe, maybe I only have one left on my circuit. Yeah, you might just need to go to Idaho. Make that your final destination in life. I'm sure that's where most people are. Forget Arizona and Florida. <laughs> Idaho is the new old people's destination. I would be okay with that. I mean, that's where potatoes are. Potatoes make French fries. Potatoes make vodka. What else do you need? <laughs> yeah. That's the Irish man's, well, yeah, Ireland. So there's <laughs> another, you're in the, uh, the state's version of Ireland, I guess. This is true. My, my grandmother's maiden name is O'Brien. So, um, yeah, I could, <laughs> there you go. I, I got the potatoes in my blood. Yeah. So your dad, what was his kind of life like as a kid or did you know much of that life he he shared with his family was he an only child what was his situation he basically grew up as an only child my Mm -hmm. i there so um, on my two sides of my family my mom's side um huge catholic family she's she's the second youngest of nine kids on my dad's side there's only two kids and there's 14 years between them so clearly he was he was an oops baby it was the surprise at the end so by the time he was old enough to remember anything my aunt had had moved out Uh, so he grew up um with a lifestyle that's just totally foreign to me besides uh growing up on a farm which i'll admit i could not handle now he grew up in the woods like he would uh take his rifle out and go hunting things and you know do all the outdoorsy stuff that just kills me now and honestly (laughs) he can't do that stuff now either we've we've both been citified completely uh, but he used to uh, you know do snowmobiles and all that um, he tells a story that they i guess raccoon pelts used to be worth something so he's got a lot of stories about hunting raccoons like that was his summer job other than farming is just going out and shooting those things which wow. uh, kind of terrifies me those raccoons are huge like he, yeah there was there was one he said one time um he had he had a hunting dog and it treed the raccoon and uh, he used to, he had a little 22 rifle he'd hold with one hand and he used the, the flashlight with the other hand. And he, it was up in the tree and he, he shined the light at it and he shot it and it fell all the way down the tree and landed on the ground with a splat. And then it stood up and hissed at him. I mean, is, is wow. there anything more terrifying that you, you shoot this thing, it falls and it's still going. Like, yeah. I, um, I would not want to face a raccoon. That's for sure. Well, it's like the uh, raccoon and elf. Everybody <laughs> that seems so unrealistic, but apparently that's what your dad was facing there. Yeah, you know their skulls are shaped exactly like bear skulls. It was one of the few <laughs> facts I retained from school. They're identical. A, a, a raccoon is like a mini bear. So I think my dad did a service to the world by waging the war on raccoons. And, <laughs> and this is the point where every animal lover out there is going to unfollow me. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I've had a good run, but I'm just going to be anti-raccoon. I'm going to go on record. They're monsters and they need to be stopped. <laughs> where I was born and raised down in Laguna, For some reason, there were quite a lot of raccoons there, and I had a family of them at two different times when I was young, living kind of in the walls of our house. And at one point, when I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade, there was 
a group of them would be out the window and I would throw them baloney. I didn't know any better. Whoa. So of course they're going to live there because they're getting <laughs> fed very well by me. And we had our doctor that was kind of our normal uh, health doctor when we were kids. This was, gosh, probably 80, mid 80s, 85 or so. And he had almost like a big terranium at his office. And he had, I think, four raccoons that were semi-domesticated, very low emphasis on semi. And (laughs) I, for my sixth grade science project, did my science project on raccoons. And I actually brought a raccoon in a, like a dog or a cat carrier to my school and had it in the gymnasium on a table with my big like four level report around it in wood <laughs> with all these pages around it. And I ended up having to take it home after lunch because so many kids were angering it basically. <laughs> and it was starting to like kind of shred all of my paper around it on the report. And people were starting to put pens and pencils in there and he was starting to get really agitated and so I had to take him home and I was so bummed because I ended up getting just an honorable mention because when the judges came around my raccoon was already gone uh-huh. so they said you probably would have won but your raccoon is gone <laughs> the uh you know add that to the list of things you can't do in schools anymore can you t- imagine taking yes. a wild raccoon now oh my god no you wouldn't be able to get it through the metal detectors yeah, my <laughs> so your dad, it, your dad was born in what year? I'm trying to kind of put piece this all together. Oh God, you're going to get me in trouble. I think 65. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Your dad is young. Yeah, relatively on the dad scale. So I'm the oldest kid. So I'm uh, I'm 32 now, and I'm pretty sure I was 22 when he was born. I'm not. I'm not going. I think he's 55. Okay, your dad is young, and you are young. You're younger than me. I get to really like feel very old on this one. <laughs> I'm gonna what I'm gonna feel like now is an idiot because I'm pretty sure my math isn't adding up here. Right? I am the worst son ever. But yeah. They, <laughs> so I was I was born. Yeah, he, he was 22, and my mom was 19. So they were they were pretty young, especially my mom. And then uh, and then you know there were six kids after me. They kept they kept trying to recreate perfection, and they just couldn't get it right. And they finally oh, gave up. So you're the oldest of seven. I am the oldest of seven, oldest and greatest. You and I are polar opposites. I'm the youngest of eight. Whoa. So big Catholic family? No, uh, crazy family. Crazy family. Yeah. Even better. Uh, no, my it's a it's a long story, but my parents couldn't have kids and they adopted five kids and just kind of kept going. And then. When my mom was a little bit old, older than 40, she out of the blue got pregnant with my brother. And then a year and a half later, she got pregnant with me and, <laughs> and they adopted a m- one of my sisters who was from Korea, mm-hmm. uh, who they knew somebody who was fostering her. And so she was older than me so i'm the youngest but i'm not the newest to the family but that is an interesting distinction you're the you're not you're youngest but not newest i i yeah. see yeah so that's i've got a little asterisk next you've to got, my you've got seniority is what you're trying to say <laughs> yeah just barely if it came for layoffs for children you would not be the first right. to go right right and it was it was weird too because i you know everybody else was already there when I was born. And so when my Korean sister arrived, that when it was, that's when a little bell went off and I said, wait a second, how do you do that? You were bringing in somebody else to our family. And then it started to become the, well, did you not know that (laughs) five of your siblings are also in that same boat? And I, so I think the oddest, the, the, the most unusual thing about my family is the spread in years. So I said my dad was, you know, 14 years old, younger than my aunt. Well, I'm uh, I'm 22 years older than my youngest brother. So, oh, wow. yeah, I, he was born my senior year in college, like the end of my senior year in college. They get pretty spread out there towards the end. Yeah. So you have a 10 year old. Your, your yes. brother is 10 or 11. 
Somewhere in there, yeah. Wow. Don't, don't ask me to pin down. I think he might be nine turning ten this year. That's that's my best guess. See, I was gonna I was gonna have my family listen to this podcast. Be like, oh look, look, I, I talked about you guys, <laughs> and now I can't remember anything about them. So I'm just gonna have to make sure none of them ever listen yeah. to this. I know what that's like. I you can use this and tell tell them. I would have to spend a really long time trying to give you the ages of my siblings because it's just difficult. They all change at different times of year too. And then you right. don't keep track of it for a while and you have no idea. I mean, okay, full disclosure, I have to do math to figure out how old I am. <laughs> if I'm not sure how old I am, I feel like I should be off the hook for everybody else. That's true. If you have nothing to go off as your base, then how are you going to get anything right? Yeah. And usually I just count backwards for me because, you know, I'm the center of the universe, but then it's two years, two years, two years, like four years maybe. And then I would then just like question marks after that I yeah. track. That's when you just throw everybody, you know, I, I know your names. I know you're younger than this person. That's over true. Here. I, I know the order that that's what matters. I know the social hierarchy. That's much more important than a number. And once they all have kids, uh, then, then that throws everything into a completely new stratosphere. And as long as you can remember their kids' names, nothing else matters. That it, it, you know that that's harder than you would think. We're just counting. So I had four kids, and I had four before any of my siblings or any of my in-laws had kids. We they were the only grandkids on every side. Now everybody else is starting to reproduce, and it's like, oh god, I got to remember a whole new set of names. It's even yeah. worse, you know, my my mom, my mom's side where there were nine kids and now I've got 26 or 27 cousins and now they've all got kids. And oh, my wife has to give me like a chart every time we go back. We only see them once a year. So I'm, ne- I'm never going to remember who these kids are. I know okay. I know some of the names. I'm not entirely sure which names go with which kids. I'm just going to call everybody. Hey, you and, and we'll be. okay. Yeah, yeah. In my family, we they had a lot of Rick's. And so that kind of made things a little bit more easy and a little bit more tricky with some of my cousins, but uh, I'm kind of the same way. I have so many cousins and we are not very good about, you know, you see some of the families that the cousins are always getting together and having big barbecues and uh, hanging out. We are totally not that family. So (laughs) Facebook, Facebook is great. There you go. Connecting people who don't want to be connected. Exactly. So, all right. So your dad has his much different family from your mom's and you are just two years older than your next in line sibling. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pilot in the air force. He flies a tanker and my brother after that's a nuclear engineer. And, uh, I'm the guy who writes jokes on the internet. So we've chosen a little bit different paths (laughs) in life. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, what you are doing kind of is like nuclear science. It's kind of in that it's completely different. <laughs> when I screw up, nobody dies. That's a good thing. There you go. If I ever get to the point where my jokes are killing people, I'm going to have to find a new profession. <laughs> but look how many people are trying to do what or similar to what you are doing and are not succeeding. So That's true. And I certainly, I wasn't the first one to do it. Um, I, but I just, I got in, I found a niche and I did it. I did it. I'm not going to say I did it best of all, but I did it better than most people. And uh, I, I think people don't use the tools that are there. I mean, Twitter gives you a score. It tells you how your joke did. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I started out writing about everything. And then I zeroed in on jokes about my kids because that's what people responded to. And I figured out how to write a better joke just through trial and error. And it's if you're willing to put in an infinite amount of time for no return, you can learn to write the perfect kid joke. You just have to <laughs> you just have to give up everything else in your life, but it'll come. Yeah. And the difference between a kid joke and a dad joke is massive as well. It, you know, the line bridges back and forth, especially since it's a dad writing the kid jokes. But yeah, they, right. And the thing about my jokes, you know, they are jokes. They're a mix of, uh, you know, some of them are real or some of them are exaggerated and some are made up. But they all have that underlying truth that makes you be able to relate to them. You know, the the parts of parenting that make you laugh and the parts of parenting that make you shake your head and the parts that make you curl up in the fetal position and wonder why you didn't use protection. Like, it's all part of the same thing. I had somebody today uh, like, why do you make up jokes about your kids? It's like, because it's funny and it mm-hmm. entertains people. Mm-hmm. And it's just like everything. It always starts out with a kernel of truth. If I ever tell a joke that doesn't relate to the truth at all, I mean, it, it doesn't go anywhere. That's why I don't tell those. These are these are all jokes. Even when when they didn't happen, they could have happened. And every time I, I make up a joke, somebody will say, oh, my gosh, my kid did that or my kid said that. 
And on the flip side, every time somebody accuses me of making up a joke, it's always something that's true. Always. Mm-hmm. The other day, my three-year-old walked around and said, I need my beauty sleep. And then she she sealed herself in a cardboard box like a vampire, like it was her coffin. <laughs> Somebody's like, kids don't do that. It was like, I, I just watched my kid do it. I have pictures. This happened. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's so many parents that all of these things are resonating with. And that's kind of the gold mine that is sitting there is the number of parents that are out there and that the number that are on Twitter for a number of different reasons, obviously, but a lot of us are on there for some kind of uh, respite from real life and from the trials and tribulations that we're going through. And, and you're going to hit you know, even out of the however many thousands of people that are following you, the hundreds of them that are going to nod their head in agreement with that happened to me or my kid did that or. And, you know, the the, the tweet format's perfect for kids because kids are easier to deal with in small bursts. I mean, how many like slightly funny things does your kid do all day? But they're just mixed in with hours and hours of frustration and whining. But what if you just cut out those few key moments and isolated them by themselves? I mean, then they're hilarious and they're fun. You get the kids without the whining. That's what that's what my Twitter account is. And that's a. it's funny because that is the you are taking the good that a lot of people are doing with social media anyways, because we always talk about how social media is what you want to portray to people. And for so many people, that is the like we, we I've even talked about this with my wife. We you know, you see all these couples that are just living the best life ever suddenly and they are in mad crazy love and my husband is the best all of these people that are having these amazing lives but it is they are either completely lying or choosing to you know show you this little snippet of their day that was otherwise covered in chaos and vomit yeah, I never, I never believe any bragging posts. So mine, I, when, when I brag, I brag about failure. It's, it's much more relatable and much more honest. There's actually a, an entire chapter in my next book about lying with pictures and the, and the uses of it. But I mean, you don't, anytime you share a picture of your kids, you never take a picture of them like crying and being miserable. You, right. you go through 500 pictures and you find the one picture where they're accidentally half smiling and that's <laughs> the one you share. And you have to remember, you're not the only one lying. Everybody else is, is lying too. It's just, you can't, you want everybody else to fall for your, your lies. You have to make sure not to fall for theirs. So yeah, at any time anybody talks about their perfect life, I, I just keep scrolling. So that's, uh, that, that's not a real thing. Yeah. It's, it's funny, too, because when we had even just the pregnancy stage with uh, my daughter, with our oldest, we kept saying to each other, why did everybody lie so much? Why is everybody <laughs> saying that pregnancy is so amazing? And I'll tell you, tell you why they lie. It's so the human race doesn't go extinct. If they didn't lie to yes. you, people would stop having babies, <laughs> and that would be the end of the line. So we lie for self-preservation for the species. That's very true. Even though, like, there are the people, your wife went through it four times. She did. She was not real thrilled. Actually, honestly, <laughs> after every single kid, she swore it was the last one. <laughs> Yeah, it's, there's something magical about the forgetfulness that you go through after a while of, uh, maybe it wasn't that bad. They say it's actually, uh, like, it's biological. They think that women actually do forget that it might be an adaptation, because otherwise they'd be like, hell no, you're not touching me. This, mm-hmm. this is not happening again. My wife, though, she was she was too good at giving birth. With a, with one of them, I think it was our first one, she basically slept through the through the birth. And, and she'll say it was because of drugs and whatnot. She would, like, wake up for the contractions and then fall back asleep. Like, I'll tell her, you're like, you remember this when the nurse came in or that? She has no idea. She just, at the end, she woke up and there was a baby in her arms. Uh, so she gave birth, I think, twice without an epidural just because things moved so fast she couldn't get one. And then twice, then she had an epidural twice. And uh, that's amazing. The baby just kind of pops out and there and you're done. So uh, mm-hmm. so really, I think on the grand scheme of things, uh, and she might disagree, but she uh, 
she probably lucked out. I, I know you hear horror stories about people who are in there for 36 or 48 hours and all those things. Um, we have never once given birth naturally. We've had to be induced every single time. Oh. I think yeah. our babies would just hang out in there forever if we didn't. Mm-hmm. So, and, she, and my wife is pretty small too. So they didn't want her to get, you know, <laughs> basically if it was a week till the due date, they would let us induce. They were not going to let that baby go long or that baby would just be gigantic. So yeah, so we induced every time we went in on a schedule, you go in there, you're bored, you fall asleep, you wake up early in the morning, you have a baby. This is, this is not representative of, I think, how the, the usual experience goes. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, there's, you know, they're the, they're the people now, well, I shouldn't say now because it's been going on for probably at least half a decade who just schedule their C-sections and, you know, I think I want to have my baby on this day and I'm just going to go through this major surgery because I don't want to do the birthing process or whatever. I was, um, all all the baby or a lot of the babies my mom had were huge. I was, I was a week or two overdue and I was pretty big to start with. I was nine, like 9.8 pounds or something. I was really big and uh, they did a C-section for me and they told her that because of that, she'd have to have a C-section for every baby after that. Mm -hmm. And she'd have another C-section for six kids. So I don't, I don't know what the medical wisdom is behind that, but she never had to have another one. So There's, That's fortunate. At that point, if, if you know that that many kids are coming as well, you basically just put a zipper there or Velcro. <laughs> I, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about the belly, but oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we just, I just lost your family from listening. <laughs> don't worry. I lost them long ago when I forgot their ages. <laughs> Yeah. So with, with regards to your then becoming a parent, did, did any of the parenting that you were kind of seeing from your dad or even from your mom, do you see that coming into play in your life really? Or do you have a completely different style from them? No, I think it's the same style. Uh, they, they were very laid back parents for the most part. They were, they were the opposite of, of helicopter parents. My favorite story about my dad, it was, it was funny because, because my youngest brother is so much younger. When he was born, I got to see my dad and mom raising kids very differently than I, when I was young. I just had a different perspective. They were probably raising them in the same way. But there was a time when, I don't know, my youngest brother was probably one or two. And he was screaming at my dad's feet while my dad was watching TV. And that kid just screamed and screamed and screamed. And I finally said to my dad, are you going to do something about that? And he goes, do something about what? Like he had just completely <laughs> tuned this child out. By child seven, he couldn't even hear crying anymore. And I aspire to that level of Zen-like serenity. If I could get there, my life would be perfect. Yeah. Anytime that you can uh, make the people around you, especially in a, a grocery store, give you that look of what is wrong with you, <laughs> you're in a, a special place. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that, that was impressive. It was funny too, to watch, uh, what my mom was like when she was pregnant. Cause you know, when I was, I was really young, you know, she was just mom. She was always kind of scary, I guess, but it was funny to see how different she actually was when she was, you know, eight or nine months pregnant and miserable and how scared my dad was of her. <laughs> there was a time. So me and I was back from college and my, my next brother Dan was back from college, I think. And my dad decided to do the laundry either because my mom asked him to, or because he was just trying to take the initiative and help out and she had this favorite sweater and he shrunk it oh boy when she was already huge and pregnant and angry it was her favorite sweater in the world Uh. and it was just unwearable (laughs) and he was so terrified he's like you got to help me we're like no man you're on your own and so (laughs) and so my mom walks in the door and we had this dog and when this dog was in trouble she would lay on her back she would pet her belly so you wouldn't be mad so my mom comes in the door and my dad lays in his back with his feet in the air like the dog Uh, and uh he escaped he escaped death from that for that time so i i learned something there too about uh about how about using humor to diffuse uh you know an eminent crisis so mm-hmm. so there are definitely some good tips i picked up there <laughs> and how has the transition from i mean since your brother is 10 or going to be 10 how is the transition for your dad as well as for your mom to 
grandparenthood. I think they like being grandparents because you can give the kids back. I mean, that's that's the ultimate goal. You right. wind them up and you send them home. We've we've used them for free babysitting many times. They live just an hour away, but because they still have two kids at home, we don't feel as bad dumping our kids on them. Whereas with my wife, mm-hmm. her, all of her dad's and mom's kids are gone. So so it's a big culture shock for them, for my parents. So they're kind of always in kid mode. So so yeah, that you know they 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 play with them and they do all those fun grandparent things. So I think they they definitely like it. Every everybody loves grandkids because if they get screwed up, it's not your fault. Yeah. So how uh, long ago was it that you let's go to where you kind of started doing anything, even the tip of the iceberg with what you're what you're doing now the the Breakwell Empire. Everybody kind of looks at it and they think, you know, I went viral in 2016. Everybody always thinks that's like the first step. Like you go viral and that's when you start to exist and there's nothing before that. But I mean, going viral for me wasn't the the first step. It was the last step of a, a very long and calculated campaign, um, you know, that I that I pursued with various focus at various times. I started out uh, comedy writing in uh, in high school. I had a computer literacy class. I'm I'm so old that I went to high school at a time where they didn't just assume you knew how to use computers. So we had an entire class on how to use Microsoft mm-hmm. Word. But you don't need a class on how to use Microsoft Word. It's it's two steps. You start it up and you and you start typing. That's it. So. I had a lot of free time in there. Right. And yeah. like any good student at a Catholic high school, I used my free time for blasphemy. And I started writing a fake book of the Bible. Oh boy. And it wasn't about theology or morality or any of that. It was about like uh, telepathic monkeys and, and penguins that stole cheese and unicorns that exploded. And I thought it was pretty funny. So I, I emailed it to two of my friends in that class who were sitting in front of me. And I watched them open that, that email and I watched them laugh. And it, it kind of changed my whole life because I had I'd always had this weird, quirky sense of humor, but I didn't have anything to do with it. Like I didn't have a way to express it. I wasn't the class clown. I I wasn't going to go up and get on stage and do stand up. But I realized I could do comedy writing. And so from there, I started uh, I started emailing people comedy articles. Um, there was like a list of 20 people I'd send it to. And these weren't 20 people who asked me to send them articles. These were just 20 people whose email addresses I knew. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I still can't email most of those people because I'm on their spam list. But like three of them would reply. So I was up to like five total <laughs> readers. And at that point, it's like, clearly this is enough to base my life on. I should, I should go into comedy writing. I was really, you know, it was writing in general, but really what I liked was the comedy part of it. So I, I went to college and I wanted to get into journalism, uh, got into journalism uh, at a paper, and I, my plan was to uh, to work my way up from a small paper to the Indianapolis Star, the biggest newspaper in Indiana, and then get a column there, and then use that column to get a book deal. Uh, and the only problem with this grand plan was I, I hated being a reporter. I've never hated anything so much in my life. So I, I quit almost immediately, mm-hmm. like 12 months into my grand plan, uh, got out, got got a job where I thought I would never write again. Then I started writing again. I thought maybe I'll give this another try and come at this from another angle rather than working my way up through journalism. Maybe I can I can make it on my own and, and build up an audience. When I looked into how people get books published, there was just this crush of humanity trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm never gonna I'm never gonna make it through that hole. I've just got to build an audience and publishers will come to me. So I, I started writing on my blog. And that blog ended up being like 300,000 words. It was huge, you know, with all these comedy articles and I couldn't get anybody to read it. Uh, and so then I moved on to Twitter and I thought Twitter will be what I use to drive traffic to the blog. And uh, then I, I Twitter helped me narrow down what kind of jokes to tell. That's how I landed on kid jokes. That's how I learned to write better jokes. Uh, and that's how I zeroed in. I stopped being the the guy who writes about random things. I became the dad who tweets hilarious conversations about his four daughters. And that uh, that focus is really what made the difference. Um, because before I would, I mean, my content I think was good. I would I would get bursts of traffic, but it would never last because they were about such unrelated things. Mm-hmm. But once I kind of defined myself as the dad who tweets hilarious conversations about the four daughters, when you clicked on one of those tweets, you found more of them. It was that was the content you were going to get. And it was an explanation that it was very easy to share with one person. And what are you laughing at? Oh, it's that dad who tweets about his four kids. And it was very, it was short enough. It could fit in a headline. And those were the key pieces 
uh, that you need to go viral. Now, now, just because I had those pieces in place didn't mean I didn't went viral right away. Uh, but I started laying down the content. I, I treated it like a job and I just, I just mass produced that stuff. Uh, I cut into sleep, it cut into work, it cut into everything else in my life. Uh, and then I had fits and starts, you know, I'd get this opportunity or that opportunity. I think this is it. I finally made it and it would go away and it would be kind of a, a false start. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, by grinding, I made it up to like 200,000 followers and then um, Star Wars The Force Awakens came out and uh, I created Very Lonely Luke, that Star Wars parody account, using the same principles I've been using on my main account, but for a different audience. Now I was appealing to people who like Star Wars and people who are antisocial and lonely, and that covers everybody on Twitter. And uh, so it took, yeah. me, it took me four years to get 200,000 followers on my main account. It took me three weeks to get 300,000 followers on Very Lonely Luke. It just exploded. Wow. It was everywhere. Those darn nerds. Yeah. I mean, I'd gone viral before people would steal my jokes and they would go viral for other people. I was like, okay, my content's clearly good. And now I went viral pretending to be somebody else, pretending to be this Jedi in an island. It's like, again, my content's good, but you really can't monetize pretending to be a Jedi. Like that's not how you get a book deal. Right. Uh, Mark Hamill followed me. That's pretty cool. He liked one of my tweets. That is very cool. uh, There's a YouTube video out there of him. Um, him reading my tweets and calling me brilliant. And uh, not that I make too big of a deal of that or anything, but I'm going to put that on my tombstone. Oh yeah. So, so I mean, so again, I'd gone viral with stolen jokes for me. I'd gone viral pretending to be somebody else. So I just kept writing and kept going. And then four months later, I finally went viral on my own Buzzfeed ran an article about me. And, um, and that's when it took off. They had 20 of my tweets and each one had a link back to me. And I'd been on their list before, you know, top 25 of this, top 25 of that. And I was one of the 25. So when they came to me and said they were going to do an article just about me, I just shrugged and said, whatever. You know, the the one thing I didn't think would go anywhere is the one thing that made it take off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when that article finally ran, it ran on a Saturday, the lowest traffic day of the week. And I checked my Twitter account and I'd gained 3,000 followers. I thought, huh, that's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. By noon that day, I'd gained 10,000 followers. Wow. Uh, by that night, I'd gained 40,000. By the end of the weekend, I'd gained 100,000. By Monday morning, I was getting emails from newspapers around the world. Uh, wow. By the end of the week, I had um, I had an agent. And by the end of the month, I mean, I was working on locking down a book deal. Like, it just happened that fast. And when you look at the end, it's like, oh, my God, you just took off just like that. And it's like, no. Right, you got to right. look at the 14 years before that where I figured out how to write a joke and what to write a joke about. Um, that, so that, that's kind of the, the process. It's very, it's very easy to be bitter about people who go viral. Because it always, it really looks like it comes out of nowhere. And maybe for some people it does. I mean, I haven't done an exhaustive study, but if it's anything like what I went through, you know, viral is just like the very last mm-hmm. step. Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking about exactly that today and thinking about how many times because I uh, manage an animal hospital uh-huh. and do the marketing and the social media and everything for it. And I've had my owner, who is my brother, actually, um, <laughs> say to me, we need to make we need to make a viral video. <laughs> I'm like, It doesn't work that way. You don't make a video and it and you like are saying this is going to be a viral thing and it's going to go viral. You can't you can you can what you can do is you can produce the kind of content that goes viral. but You can't necessarily make any one thing go viral. But if you have a lot of that content, it's kind of like a forest fire. If you chop the right kind of wood and set it up close enough together, if you get part of it to go up in flames, it'll all burn. You'll burn down the whole forest. Yeah, Um, I've noticed though Twitter's changed its algorithms and it's real easy now. I mean, not easy, but it's more common for somebody with like 500 followers to write one tweet that gets 100,000 likes to be like, Mm -hmm. gosh, remember Mm -hmm. back in the 90s when we were all wearing Abercrombie and Fitch and watching Rugrats on TV? You know, like something everybody relates to. Yeah. And then a few days later, that same person's like, really, guys, 100,000 of you liked this tweet and nobody followed me. And that's exactly right, because what that guy did is he had one tweet with nothing behind it. When you click on that tweet, you don't find more relatable tweets about the nineties. You find a guy complaining about school and complaining about work and talking about girls, like just random things. And that's why I was finally able to go viral. When you click on that kid tweet, you found 15,000, literally 15,000 other kid tweets like that. I had finally honed down. I deleted the bad ones. I only left the good ones up. Um, and that's why it went viral. I'd put that fuel in place to, you know, to make the whole, the whole place go up in flames. That's kind of the way it is. Like you end up finding this kind of gold mine of material that is all 
cohesive. And to me, as a dad who relates to a lot of that, who has some very similar interests uh, that you have, that comes from a completely different background, lives in a completely different part of the U.S. and whatever, like those are still things that are hilarious and very tangible to me as this could be my kid or that was my kid. It's funny how that works too. Like early on when I would do some of the, the weirdest tweets are the most likely ones to be true because you you don't want to take those risks and go out on a limb because you don't think people will relate to them. But I quickly figured out that the weirder they were, the more likely people were to relate to them. Because it turns out that all kids are just weird, just flat out weird. There's mm-hmm. there is nothing any kid can ever say or ever do that somebody else's kid hasn't already said and done. They are all strange in the same ways, and I, I think that's one of the, been one of the keys to my success. Is you just you can't overestimate how unusual all children are. I actually had completely forgotten that during this time forever ago when my little girl was very new still that I had created a Twitter account of just this that was basically her her account, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and was me just posting things that she said. I had completely forgotten it existed and I stumbled into it probably two weeks ago. (laughs) And I was cracking up at some of this stuff, like, you know, her talking about how glorious her toots were and all of these (laughs) different things that were just, you know, dumb little kid things, but that also are things that are cracking up parents around the world on a daily basis too. It's funny how quickly you forget those things. If you don't write them down, like I'll scroll back through the tweets and like, Oh yeah, I guess they did do that. Or they did say that. Mm -hmm. And like when I'm writing them now, I know, okay, this part's true. And this part's exaggerated and this part's made up, but because they're all so close to the things they normally do, these are the kinds of things they do and say that over time, when I look back, I start to think they were all true. Like if you ask me 10 years from now, I'm going to say, Oh yeah, all that happened exactly like that. Because it just, it all hits so close to the mark that after a while you can't mm-hmm. tell the difference. So what is your wife's take? How does she kind of like or dislike or how has the process been for her dealing with with your shenanigans? Well, now that we're at the end of the process, I've gotten to the point where, where you know, books and Twitter pay more than my day job. She's all the way on board. I just got mm-hmm. a few days ago, I got invited as a guest to honor up to confusion it's a sci-fi convention in detroit and they let me bring my wife as a guest so that was pretty cool we got to spend three days up there away from the kids with free food and free drinks so it's paid off for her at this point yeah and i definitely do need her help she helps me you know tells me what the kids have done she helps me get pictures of them helps me get them set up for ads so she's a she's an active partner now uh, early on, she was less than thrilled of it. You you have to remember, though, how many years I put in, literally years, where this wasn't going anywhere. Like back when I started this, we'd never heard of anybody like getting a book deal and building something out of just Twitter. Like I was mm-hmm. – I mean, I'm sure somebody had done it before me, but like I – we were <laughs> – this was not a common business model at all. And I was writing uh, you know, 25 jokes a day just obsessively uh, to the expense of everything else. Um, and, and that's why some of those early successes, you know, I'd get something published here or there, or get picked up by a website like those. Those made all the difference in the world, not because they paid much money because they almost never did, but because they bought me breathing room that like, OK, I need to cut you a little more slack. because You're starting to get blips of success. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she did the most important thing of all, though, and she she didn't put her foot down and stop it. She never said you can't tweet about the kids or any of that. I mean, she was always on on board um you know these are very you know kind of um, family friendly kind of things at first she didn't want her picture on there so i respected that she Mm -hmm. didn't want me to get the family murders so i'd respected that and then (laughs) here in the last in the last year or so she started letting me put her picture on there so we're we're moving in that direction so she i if if she had been different if she had if she had put her foot down at step one and said you can't tweet about the kids I mean, I would have been done. I would have had to have gone a completely different way. And I do know about a lot. There are other comedy writers on Twitter who do totally different kinds of comedy because their wives specifically told them you can't do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, you know, they're still they're still looking for their book deals. So this is definitely the easier way to go. It's where the market is. And if it if it kind of hadn't gone in this direction, do you think were you ever kind of entertaining since you're doing comedy writing, but you were also saying you didn't really ever see yourself doing the kind of stage route or anything 
if nothing came out of this or you didn't get a book deal or anything like that, would you have kind of looked towards writing for a comedian or doing something for TV or something like that? Or where do you think it would have gone? I was in a good place because early on I wanted to make a living off writing and journalism and that, and that was just killing me. Uh, And so I, I got out and I, I got a job where I didn't have to write at all. And I was just in a very sustainable place. Like I was writing on my own in my free time, quote unquote, free time, really time I was cutting into other things. So I could do it indefinitely. I was not going to starve if I failed. And even now when like I have a big ad deal or something that falls through, I shrug and say, okay, this is, you know, slightly over half my income. But if I, if I never wrote another thing again, I, I'd still be okay. Cause I still have that day job for the time being, you know, it may be going away sooner rather than later, but it's still there. So I, I didn't have that desperation where I said, I need to start selling jokes. And in fact, I, I don't think I ever would sell jokes like that. I've I've done some writing for like uh, some copywriting for ads and things like that. And that's fine. Um, but I don't think I would ever go and uh, like for a stand-up comedian and write a routine for them for them to use. Because I just, that blows my mind that people just give away content for that. I mean, I know you get paid, but if somebody's paying you for that content, it means they're making more money off of it than mm-hmm. what they paid you. And they're going up on stage and, and um, you know, taking credit. And that also boggles my mind. Like, if nothing else, I have the pride of creating these jokes, even if they never go anywhere. Like, the, deep down, the reason I do this is I like writing jokes. I know I created this. And I don't know how, as a stand-up comedian, you can look yourself in the mirror if you're using somebody else's jokes. I mean, even if you have a contract and you signed it, I just, I, I didn't get in this to get rich. I got in this because it's something I like to create. So I would, I would yeah. not do that. Amen. What you just said in, in a non and in a non-religious and a religious <laughs> way. I love that. That's, that's kind of the way that I feel. And, you know, I've kind of gone through a lot of that with my wife as well. And just kind of had to say, and, and who know you know, I, I know that I'm never going to be bankrolling from this, but you know, it's kind of one of those things that I, kind of hope that you can keep allowing me to do this and trust in the process and hopefully something comes down the line from it but it also she kind of giggles a little bit or rolls her eyes when we talk about it but we always talk about the cups that everybody has i always use this analogy that you have your cups that you need to have filled and that you can pour your cup into somebody else's cup when yours is, is full. But when yours are empty, you have absolutely nothing to give other people. And for me, like for a long time when I was a writer, writing filled my creativity cup. And then when I did photography for a really long time, which I still kind of dabble in, that fills that creativity cup a little bit as well. And this absolutely like fills a number of different cups for me. And for that alone, like that enables me, even if she's not feeling it or sensing it directly, that puts more in me to give a better life to her, even if it's not financially. (laughs) Yeah, you can't you can't go into it just for the money. I mean, like all along, I hoped I would make a living off of it at some point, but you have to you have to enjoy it when you're not getting paid. If you don't like it when you're not getting paid, you're not going to like it when you get paid either. Yeah. And that kind of boggles my mind that people start slogging through this when they don't like it. It's like, if you already have a day job that you don't like, why would you take a side job that you also don't like? Mm-hmm. You've already got yeah. the money taken care of. Find something that you're passionate about. Maybe the money will come and maybe it won't. Uh, there's a lot to be said, though, for for keeping a day job and working at things like this. Um, you know, I've seen people who've, who've taken a shot at their dreams and gone in, you know, full time to try it and it didn't work out. And when it didn't work out, they didn't like fall back and say, OK, I'll get a full time job and then you know do this on the side. They just gave up like they gave it their all. They didn't make it and they were just done. I think it's really unfortunate if you give your dreams a deadline like that. When you've, mm-hmm. you're kind of in a stable place and you're supporting yourself, otherwise you can keep going forever. And either you make it and you make some money at it, or you just do something and you have fun with it. You know, outside of work. I mean, either way, you come out ahead. So I'm, I'm definitely in favor of that approach. Yeah. And so how how much do your kids? currently and i'm assuming obviously the seven-year-old being on the high end of this but how much are they kind of 
understanding what's going on at to any extent. They're not entirely sure how much they're involved. They see it more as my account <laughs> than theirs. Um, but they, they think I'm famous, which is, you know, I'm internet famous, which is, which is very different than being real famous. They understand uh, that it gets attention. You know, every kid, you know, that their fundamental desires, you know, look at me, watch what I'm doing, dad. Mm-hmm. And they know that I need that for the internet. So they tell me to grab their, my phone all the time for them to do different things. Now, That's there are, awesome. There are people online who are convinced that my kids are these comic geniuses and I'm just, I have nothing to do with the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those people really have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how comedy <laughs> works. Um, so, you know, my, my kids aren't to that point there, but my kids are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They see me as doing 100% of it just kind of writing stories about them. They're kind of the characters in my stories. And sometimes those stories are very true and sometimes they're not very true at all. Mm-hmm. But they always kind of, they relate to them. And, you know, my oldest kids are now old enough to read, so they'll see them on there. The other day, my five-year-old uh, found herself on YouTube. I make these YouTube videos that are funny with the kids. And uh, she saw that. She thought that was pretty incredible because to kids, you know, YouTube is the big time. Yeah. So we'll we'll see how that continues. I'm not sure what will happen in their teenage years and things like that. But I think, again, because I walk this line between truth and fiction, I always make sure to portray them in a positive light, even when it's a a negative situation, even when it's them being difficult, it's them being difficult in kind of an adorable kid way. It's not them being like, you know, awful people. And if you look at the basic format of my jokes, the basic format is dad loses no matter what the situation is. I mean, it's it's very self-deprecating humor. I'm not, I'm not making fun of my kids. I'm mostly making fun of myself. And I think that's, that's a nuance that a lot of people miss with kid humor. I've seen some people who mean well, and then you read the jokes and they just come off terribly. It's like, this is, this is just you bullying your child. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. what you want to go for at all. At the end of the day, uh, if your kids aren't having fun with it, you're doing it wrong. Well, plus the oversensitivity level that we find ourselves in as a, I don't even know if it's at it as a nation or as a planet, over so many things right now, you know, there's there's at least going to be some level of those people that are going to feel like you are doing something wrong or oh, yeah. uh, exploiting or whatever. Oh, yeah. I've got a column coming out in a few days from people who told me I was going to get my kids killed over something or another. I mean, it just it doesn't happen a lot with me just because I kind of set a low bar for parenting. Nobody comes to me for real parenting <laughs> advice. But every yeah. once in a while, there'll be a freak out of people. That, I can't believe you do that with your kids. It's like, you know what? My my kids are going to turn out just fine. Yeah. So you have your new book coming out in November and are you doing any publicity for uh, your first book or? Oh yeah. I mean that, that never stops. I, <laughs> my, my shameless self-promoting has definitely come in handy there. And if you are out there, um, you know, trying to get a book deal or whatever, or trying to make your way up, definitely get comfortable with the self-promotion. It never stops. It, it doesn't. If you get, uh, you know, the biggest book contract in the world with a big uh, five book publisher, they're still going to expect you to promote and to go out there. I mean, it, it all ultimately all falls falls back on you. I mean, look at, look at movie stars. They get, they make all this money and what do they have to do when the movie comes out? They've got to go and do the talk show circuit. No matter what you do, you've always got to promote. So I've been experimenting with that this time around. I've learned a lot as far as what works and what doesn't to sell books. Uh, I've tried just about everything. Uh, the other day I made an animation to go with the audiobook. I was fortunate enough to get to record my own audiobook. They uh, oh, that's awesome. They didn't want a professional, they wanted me to read it. So I, I went and put the pictures with that and that that sold some books. So yeah, I'm trying different things. I found that um conferences don't necessarily sell a lot of books, but they're they're kind of a good experience. They helped me learn to uh, to speak in public because I came at this strictly from a writing background. I don't. A lot of people get into this from a stand up background, which mm-hmm. is a totally different skill set. So I don't necessarily have that live performance skill set in my wheelhouse. So that I, that's one thing I'm gaining from all this. I'm learning to get up in front of people and not throw up. So we'll we'll see if I can keep learning that. That's great. Throwing. I mean, I don't know if that would be all that 
awful, I think a lot of people might enjoy seeing that happen. So if it, if that ever does, just don't hold it back, yeah. James. And, just, and that's it's it's weird that like like and I, I don't get so nervous anymore. But the, the first time, like I had to give a speech in front of two hundred people. And as I was practicing for it, I finally realized that, that 200 people is nothing like the, when you compare it to the size of the audience, I'm out in front of like every single day, like a bad mm-hmm. joke is seen by a hundred thousand people. And then I, then I started going on there and doing videos to practice for this. And I was looking at the video numbers. I was like, my God, like 30,000 people watch that video. And I'm <laughs> nervous about going in front of 200 people. It, uh, yeah. it really gave me perspective. So. So now I realize that when I do these live performances, I'm actually failing on a much smaller scale than normal. So it's actually a lot easier. But you can see their faces. You can, but like, I don't know. I I guess I've been kind of pampered. I haven't had a truly hard audience. I think if you really get into stand-up, you get that audience that uh, is just rough. But one of the things I have going for me since I'm always in writing is I never hear laughter. You know, I've written, what, sixteen or 17,000 jokes now, and I never hear anybody laugh. Mm-hmm. So when I get in front of a stage, if I get any laughter, that's incredible. That's 100% more laughter than I've ever heard in my life. Right. And if, if I get awkward silence, like that's just my normal state. Like You can't stop me with awkward silence. It just makes me stronger. <laughs> that just keeps your flow going. Exactly. That's, that's, yeah. That is my comfort zone. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to throw out anything else because I I don't know if I'm hitting everything with your exploding unicorn Twitter without the E in front of it, your exploding unicorn.com with the E in front of it, uh, your wrong and wronger podcast that's on YouTube and in all of the other podcast formats, the lonely, is it lonely Luke? Very lonely Luke. Very lonely Luke, which is just on Twitter. It's on Facebook as well. There's a guy okay. who copied me. I'm, I think I'm very lonely. Luke Twitter is the official destination. There's, if you go to Twitter for the very lonely Luke there, there's a link to the Facebook one, the official unofficial Facebook one. And then you have your own YouTube that, uh, aside from the uh, wrong and wronger, yeah, James Breakwell, yeah, that's it, like tied into my Google Plus account. My my goal this year, I, I probably shouldn't say this goal because I'm going to look stupid if I can't get it. My goal is to get a hundred thousand <laughs> followers on YouTube, uh, and it looks ridiculous sitting there now with my three thousand followers. But you know what? There was a time I wanted a million followers on Twitter, and I was sitting there with a hundred. So you, everything starts okay. out being ridiculous until it's not. So we'll see if I can maybe over time shift some people over there if let me tell you this if there are millions of people that well i mean that are kids but still their kids all have parents that are watching a woman's hands open a toy oh my god those are the worst thing on the internet (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i see stuff like that it's like how is this getting you know, views and I'm not, but you know what? There was a time on Twitter, I would look at stupid jokes and think, how are, how are those getting views? And yeah. I'm not. And it's just about putting out the, t- putting in the time, putting out the content and promoting it. And you yeah. grow slowly over time. And finally you get that burst that makes it take off. So I'm starting over again. You know, I, I conquered Twitter. I've got pretty good on Facebook and now I, I move into YouTube. I said, there's always some new platform I've got to struggle on. Well, I won't, I won't make you pay me any royalties if you make your slug line on YouTube better than a woman's hands opening a child's <laughs> toys. It's amazing how many hours kids can watch those two. It's like, kids, do you understand you are literally watching a commercial? <laughs> Seriously. Do your kids watch those? My five-year-old does. Yeah, yeah. She got really into them for those Shopkins things. I mean, those are like oh, gambling. Shopkins. It's like you don't know yeah. what you're going to get in the packs. And like, I don't understand. Yeah. You get things out and they're just these stupid little toys you never even play with. They just sit there. Like it's, it's like a purse with eyes. You know what? My- when Shopkins came out, I felt so dumb for, you know, it's those kind of things where you're like, why haven't I thought of anything like that? <laughs> yeah, there, there are so many of those things. But, you know, our <laughs> parents look back on our stupid toys the same way. I think it's just it's a sign that you're a parent, that you think the kids, things your kids play with are totally stupid. So we're, we're, we're maturing as human beings. Now we have something new to look down on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So you should also make sure that you go on to, I mean, is Amazon the prime place that you're sending people for only dead on the inside? Yes, I mean, it's in it's in bookstores nationwide, Barnes and Nobles and all that. But it's the easiest place to get it is probably Amazon. Uh, only dead on the inside, a parent's guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse. It's a it's a mashup of a, a parenting guide and a zombie survival guide. 
Um, and, and so far, it's, it's worked. Not a single person who's read that book has died in a zombie attack. 100% survival rate. I don't know if there's a, a more ringing endorsement than that. No, I'm, I'm waiting for the uh, tinfoil stamps to start showing up on your <laughs> book that say that right on there. I show you, it has a money back guarantee. If you die in a zombie attack, I absolutely will refund your money. <laughs> That's fantastic. To the family members too, or is it just to the just actual? to the zombie? I mean, that's oh, okay. the catch. I don't want people to know about. Like, it's really hard for a zombie <laughs> to sue you in court. That's true. All right. Well, thank you a thousand million times over for uh, your time coming on and being uh, on the podcast and sharing your stories and your journey to the Arch de Triumph, which you are currently still building for yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. This was, a, this was a good podcast. You got a good product going on here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. And that wraps up my conversation with James Breakwell. Again, you should look for him on Twitter. If nowhere else, look for him on Twitter, Exploding Unicorn, without the E on the front. If you are a reader and you like to laugh, you should absolutely, if you aren't a reader, you should still get his book and have somebody else read it aloud to you. Or you can look at all the pictures. There's amazing animations that go along with all of his stories or most of them that are in there. Again, the name of his book, though you can look it up under James Breakwell, is Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. Again, you can find Daddy Unscripted also on Twitter with not as many followers. It's just Daddy Unscripted. You can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, also as Daddy Unscripted. And please go to iTunes subscribe, leave a review. I would love to see some new reviews coming from some of you who are first time listeners. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do another giveaway. I did one with a recent episode and we're going to start doing these every once in a while. And James is a perfect person for this. And I will do two of them. Let's just say that right there, two giveaways. So I am going to give away two of his only dead on the inside a parent's guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse books to people who leave me a new review so if you leave a new review on itunes take a screenshot of that send the screenshot to daddyunscripted at gmail.com and i will select two people out of that group of however many it happens to be and two of you will win a free copy of Only Dead on the Inside that I will send you through Amazon directly to whatever address you give me. Isn't that great? So all you have to do is leave a review, send a screenshot, and you're going to win a free book. So that's, you know, that's what I want to do for you guys. Um, it helps me. I help you. It helps James. We're helping each other. We're all bonding and we're all kind of getting together in a small room and singing a new version of We Are the World because of what we're doing together here through the Daddy Unscripted podcast. Isn't that awesome? Thanks for listening, you guys. Daddy Unscripted is proud to be a part of the Osiris podcasting family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and music. Check out OsirisPod.com to check out our family of podcasts. Osiris partners with Relics Magazine, so check out Relics.com for music news. Thanks again for checking out this episode with James Breakwell. Again, a huge thank you as well to Umphreys McGee for allowing the partnership to happen for me to have their music all over the podcast amazing band they are on the road right now they're actually coming if you also live in southern california like i do they're coming to california in march check them out umphreeze.com u-m-p-h-r-e-y-s.com and see where you can find them thank you to everybody for tuning in to this very special episode with james breakwell i really appreciate it keep your eye open for the next episode that's going to be coming out in the next one to two weeks Thanks, you guys.